Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to John uh, chapter 14. We're going to be covering this morning verses 15 through 31. And uh, last week we looked at this incredible promise of Jesus that he was going away to prepare for his disciples their own place in the kingdom of heaven, in their Father's house. That he was going to make for them their own room, their own suite, as it were, which is going to be far more wonderful, more incredible than anything they ever imagined or even dreamed of. And I have to say, by the way, I was so encouraged and thankful for your emails and and your feedback from last week, the way that God worked through His Spirit. Just praise God for that. Uh, Well, this morning, Jesus, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus continues to comfort His disciples, only it won't be in where they will one day go, but instead in whom He will soon send them. So Jesus is still comforting His his beleaguered uh, and scared disciples Only now, what he puts in front of them is not their future hope, while they're still probably thinking about that. He will comfort them in the one that he will soon send. Uh, When we talk about the triune God of the Christian faith, this God who is one in three persons, it's fairly easy for us to see the personal nature of two of the members of the Trinity. In fact, we talk about God the Son, we talk about Jesus, it's easy for us to relate to him. uh, because of his humanity, we see what he suffered, we see what he went through, and, and also because of the names that are ascribed to him. He is the Son of Man, and so we can relate to him. We, we can understand and, and relate to Jesus on some level. And then when we read from Jesus that, that we ought to call God our Father when we pray to him, we can see another familiar, familial image there that helps us to understand and respond to uh, him as our Father, the one who guards us, the one who provides for us, the one who, who governs us and directs us and loves us as his children. We know what a father should be, and even if you don't have a great father, uh, you, can, you still know what a father should be, and we're able to relate to the Father in that way. But when we think about the third member of the Trinity, there's, there's less connection, isn't there? In fact, even the name Holy Spirit Spirit is less sort of family. If you come from some backgrounds, He is the Holy Ghost. Certainly doesn't sound very inviting, does it? Sounds kind of scary to me, like someone is lurking, uh, ready to sort of jump out and scare me. Um, We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a force, um, kind of like in Star Wars, maybe more of an it than a he. But in the Scriptures, He is always described as doing things only a person can do not an impersonal force. For example, in Ephesians 4, we're told that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. This is something you can't do to a force, but only a person. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're told that we can, we can outrage the Holy Spirit. In Romans 15, we're told that the Holy Spirit loves. These are thing, again, things, again, that only a person does. He's not just a person, but a divine person. He is God. The reality is the Holy Spirit is just as personal just as loving, just as caring as either father or son, and equal to father and son. We just don't know what to do with him at times. Francis Chan, uh, in a book he wrote a few years ago, calls the Holy Spirit the forgotten God, saying we, we, we don't really pay much attention to the Holy Spirit. J.D. Greer, pastor and president of the Southern Baptist Convention, says most Christians know he's there, but they are unclear about exactly what he does or how to interact with him, if, or if that's even possible. And yet there was something so important about the Holy Spirit 
that Jesus told his disciples, it was actually to their advantage that he would leave them if his departure meant the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit's presence inside of them would be better than Jesus beside them. I have to confess, even in my own prayer life, as I was reflecting and preparing this week, I I often pray to the Father as we are instructed to do. Jesus tells us, his disciples, to to pray our Father. And and I often in my prayer life, I will praise Jesus and exalt Jesus. Um, But I rarely ever address the Holy Spirit. In fact, sometimes wonder, am I really supposed to even do that? Sometimes I feel like if if I do pray to the Holy Spirit, it's like, I've reached the wrong number, like, you know, he's in heaven sort of pointing, no, you're, you're, you mean to get a hold of him. So there is that sort of uncomfortable uh, uh, perspective when we're, we're looking at the Holy Spirit, but Jesus actually comforts his disciples by telling them, as we're going to see, that when he goes, he will send them another, another helper, the point being that he's another just like Jesus. He will be to the disciples everything that Jesus was until now. You know, in the Old Testament, the writers longed for a day when the personal experience of God, the very presence of God, would actually be the norm. In fact, in Ezekiel 37, God himself promises that, uh, that my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my, with my people. So there is throughout the Bible this sense of yearning for the day when God would be with us, when, when his very presence would be our confidence and it would be our joy. John tells us at the very beginning of this gospel, you may recall if you were here when we started this study, that these promises of God's dwelling with men are actually fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so finally the eternal God could be seen and, and touched and known. But now, in John 14, we see this promise take on a new dimension Now God will take up residence, not just on the earth, but actually within each one of us. Now think about the weight of that. Think about the gravity of that. Not just Emmanuel, God with us, but now we have God in us. The very living God residing in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. So this morning what I want to do is I want to look at uh, three primary works of the Holy Spirit. Three primary works, John chapter 14. Uh, Let me begin by reading verses 15 through 24. The word of the Lord reads this way. This is Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, he will, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So just to kind of bring us up to speed here, kind of where we are as a reminder, it's the night before Jesus would be killed, and Jesus' disciples are understandably worried. I mean, he's told them that he's not going to be with them much longer. He's, he's told them, if not actually, he's hinted and, and made it clear to them that he will suffer and he will be gone soon. Their teacher, their leader, their beloved friend, their mentor is about to be murdered. So naturally, they're grieving. They're, they're confused. They still don't understand how this is all going to work. But they're saddened by all of this. And of course, they're, they're concerned about their own future as well. But what we can't overlook here is also how sick Jesus must have felt. He would soon be subjected to an incredible physical pain, unspeakable mockery and abuse, and then he would suffer the full wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of the world, though he himself never sinned. So he's in this unbelievable agony right now. In fact, in in a different gospel, we read that that he, he sweat drops of blood. I mean, this is in how much anguish he was in that, that he goes to the Father in prayer and in his, his sweat falls to the ground like blood. I mean, he's in tremendous agony right now. But what is he doing in this, this moment of anguish? He's ministering to his disciples. He's the one who will be crucified. He's the one who's going to go through all this incredible stuff, and yet what is he doing? He's actually comforting the disciples. It's kind of like, It would be like a woman who's in the middle of giving birth to a child in the pains of excruciating labor, kind of gently rubbing the arm of her worried husband who stands next to her and saying, look, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You can do this. We're going to get through this. I can tell you from experience, watching Janine go through four C-sections, I needed someone to comfort me afterward. I mean, she looked like she was fine. She couldn't feel anything. I was just absolutely distraught as I saw all that. And this is exactly like, it's like someone who is in the middle of this incredible pain, this unbelievable experience, actually comforting those around them. It's incredible, the sort of, the Savior that we have. Jesus is in turmoil, and yet he's ministering to, to his disciples, and he begins and ends this going away speech with the same phrase, let not your heart be troubled. But how could he say that to them? When they recognized that he was leaving, they recognized that, that, that their own sort of uh, security was going to be in jeopardy here, how could they not be troubled? Well, Jesus says, I'm not leaving you alone. In fact, I love you too much for that. I'm sending another helper, a divine advocate, who will be with you forever and never leave you. Now, the word helper, the word translated helper, is an interesting one. The Greek word uh, paraclete literally means the one called alongside. Para means alongside. Uh, kaleo, uh, para means called, rather. Uh, kaleo means, or para means alongside. I'm going to give you the right definition in a minute. Para means alongside. Kaleo means called. So he is the called alongside one. The word paraclete is translated differently by different interpreters. You, you have a, a version that may read advocate. Uh, you may have a version, uh, we, the one we use here, reads helper. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, the message, uses the word true friend, the phrase true friend. Martin Luther preferred the translation comforter, which is actually uh, what I think is the best one, best captures the Spirit's work. What the Spirit does, and, and this is most incredible, and this is our first point this morning, the Holy Spirit 
constantly and faithfully reassures those in Christ of God's love for them. We might even say, we might even say, this is the primary work of the Spirit. Might even say, this is the Spirit's number one responsibility. Constantly and faithfully reassuring those in Christ, reassuring us of God's love for us. You know, when I think about how the Holy Spirit was explained to me when I was growing up and just sort of starting in church as a teenager, he was not at all presented as someone who offered much assurance, to be honest with you. All I heard about was the conviction the Holy Spirit would bring. You know, if you, if you sin in this way, you're going you're to experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you do this, you're going to get the conviction. And, and to be sure, the Holy Spirit does convict us. We're going to see in John 16, just a couple chapters later, that that is one responsibility, one role of the Holy Spirit. But he's not called the convictor, is he? He's called the comforter. His very name, Paraclete, the one called alongside to help, suggests that, that he re- reassures us. He regularly reassures us of God's love. In fact, the Scriptures actually tell us that very clearly. Romans 5, the Apostle Paul writes, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, Because, why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's through the Holy Spirit, Paul says, that God's love is poured into our hearts, which is really just a picture. What he's saying is it's through the Holy Spirit that we become regularly persuaded of God's love for us so that we're able to recognize it and actually rest in God's love. Now, why do we need to be reassured of it? Well, Because of a lot of reasons, really. Because of our persistent sin. You know, we sin in this one way over and over, and we we, we promise God, I'll never do it again. I'm not going to do that again, and yet we do it again. We sin in ways that we feel like we've, we've gained victory over, and yet we blow it again. Why do we need to be reassured of God's love? Because of our inconsistent efforts to know God. You know, he's given us everything we need to know Him, and we have His Word, which reveals to us His great plan of salvation, and yet we go days, sometimes weeks, without actually engaging, taking in that Word. We need to be reassured of God's love for us because of our own failed promises, the things we commit to do to other, for other people and for God and we fail to do. We need to be persuaded of God's love regularly because of the rejection we experience from other people. And so sometimes, psychologists call it transference, someone rejects us, someone responds harshly to us, and we think, well, that's how God must be. And so we need to be reassured of God's love for us. And the reasons are actually endless. And I can tell you as a pastor, I've heard this statement so many times over the years in ministry. Someone will say to me, I just don't know how God could really love me after blank. I just don't know how God could really love me after what I've done or in light of my fickle devotion or the fact that I've wandered away from Him yet again. How could He love me? Well, God's Spirit leads us into the greatest fellowship of love imaginable. In that day, Jesus says, that is when He sends the Helper, represents a new era in salvation history. And here's how he says it will look. Jesus is in the Father, verse 20. 
The disciples are in Jesus, verse 20. Jesus is in the disciples. The disciples are loved by the Father, verse 21. The disciples are loved by Jesus, verse 21. And the Holy Spirit reassures the disciples that they're loved, verse 26. In the mid-1970s, one of the most horrific uh, modern genocides took place in Cambodia. Uh, over a four-year span, the Communist Party known as Khmer Rouge murdered a quarter of the population. So just imagine, I mean, one-fourth of the population of a nation murdered by these terrorists. Well, the most intense hatred was reserved for Christians. And so those of the Khmer Rouge would hunt down Christians with this relentless passion, and then they would resort to these sort of medieval uh, practices as a way to torment, punish, and torture them. So, so grotesque that I decided to actually uh, scratch that from uh, this illustration. I'm not going to tell you what all they did, but, but, but Christians were in the crosshairs of this communist party. And, and, and they were tortured and tormented so badly that whereas in the ni- early 1970s, there were around 170,000 Christians in Cambodia. By the late 70s, only about 3,000 remained. Can you imagine? 170,000 Christians reduced down to three or 4,000. Unbelievable torture. Well, one bold Christian woman during this horrific experience said this, The Khmer Rouge may destroy our homes and our churches, but they cannot take God's Spirit from us who lives in the treasure houses of our hearts. This is true for every believer. It's true for you. Maybe you're going through, maybe 2020 has just started, but already has proven to be a bad year for you. Maybe, maybe you lose uh, your reputation. Uh, maybe you, you lose uh, your job. Maybe you lose your respect. Maybe you lose your friends. Who knows what could and may happen to us. But one thing that can never happen is no one can ever take from you God's Spirit from within you. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will never abandon you, nor will He ever let you slip away finally. He will remain in you and reassure you of God's love for you in Christ. That's what the Spirit of God does. Now, what else does He do? Look at verses 25 through 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you, will, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now you can see how incredibly dense this passage is. I mean, there's so much to it. There's so much in terms of the theological aspect of it. In fact, it seems like every word is packed with meaning. And not surprisingly, it's been misunderstood, misapplied, and abused. One way that some have abused this passage is, is they've suggested that when Jesus says in verse 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things, 
that Jesus means we need not take seriously the hard work of Bible study, biblical interpretation. I mentioned to you a few months ago about traveling and coming back on a plane and sitting right next to another young guy, probably in his mid-twenties, who said that he, had, he was on his way to a uh, revival. He was preaching at a revival, and he had, he had four or five preps, so four or five sort of 40-minute sermons. When I asked him what he was going to be speaking on, he said that he, he didn't really know. He was still waiting on the Holy Spirit to provide the sermons. This is not uh, what Jesus is talking about. This is not an endorsement of, of laziness. It's not a, an endorsement of a lack of study. There is no shortcut for the hard work of faithful biblical interpretation, the hard work of studying. What Jesus is talking about here is that the Holy Spirit actually reminds and applies the teaching of Jesus to the hearts of his disciples so that it enlightens their understanding of who he is and what he's come to do, and it deepens their faith. New Testament scholar and author D.A. Carson explains it this way. One of the Spirit's principal tasks after Jesus is glorified is to remind the disciples of Jesus' teaching and to help them grasp its significance. Here's the second work of the Holy Spirit we see here. The Holy Spirit enables and encourages our faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit strengthens the faith of the believers by regularly taking us back to Christ's finished work on our behalf. The first, He must actually enable a person to have faith. That's why I say the Holy Spirit enables and encourages. Remember what we read in verse 17 a few minutes ago, the world cannot receive the Spirit of truth because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. So unless the Holy Spirit does a work in someone's heart, actually making them alive in Christ, giving them spiritual life, giving them eyes to see, they can't even see the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth, though, enlightens us and enables us to have faith. Even faith is a gift, Paul says. And that same Spirit sustains our faith. He makes it possible and certain that those who are in Christ will have a faith that perseveres. So, you know, there are times when, when in the Christian life when we feel like our faith is really strong. And there are times when, I guess if we're honest, we feel like we're just barely hanging on. Maybe it's maybe a trial or tragedy comes our, across, uh, comes our way and we just we, we ask the question, like, how can this happen? Where, where are you, God? I was teaching in southwest Florida just last Monday night, so less than a week ago, and uh, it's a two-and-a-half-hour lecture, so we, people need breaks throughout that, so we had a couple of breaks, and during one of the breaks, this lady came up to me, and she looked very troubled. I, I didn't know, you know, I couldn't tell what she was going to say to me, but she looked really perplexed, and she, she said to me, I, I just, I don't really feel God anymore. Like, I, I don't feel Him. I don't know. I don't experience Him. Shouldn't a real Christian experience God? Because I'm not experiencing Him. I tried to comfort her that Our faith is not in our feelings, but in a real historical person and a real historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. And there are going to be times when we feel God and there's this incredible moment of sort of closeness to God. And as we mentioned last week, maybe it's it's during a worship service or maybe it's during a quiet time of prayer. Maybe God just blesses us in an unbelievable way, in a supernatural way. and, And we feel, we sense the very presence of God. But there are also going to be times when We don't feel it as much. And and our feelings can betray us and and cause us to believe that God is actually not there, that that He's not going to sustain us, that He doesn't love us. Well, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is He actually 
sustains the faith of those who are in Christ. He encourages and strengthens our faith. Now, he needs to encourage our faith because of both internal and external reasons. Internally, again, our faith is weak at times, and it goes up and down. We have these big highs and these low lows. And sometimes our faith is actually riddled with doubts. And externally, we are bombarded with a hundred temptations every day. And then thousands of other would-be saviors promising satisfaction and happiness. Last week I mentioned, as we kind of wrapped up, I said we'll come back to, just for a few moments, John 14, 6. This powerful, incredible statement by Jesus. Here's what it says. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But it actually takes the work of the Spirit for us to believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. You know, we've seen throughout Jesus' ministry already what I, what I would say really is a breathtaking inclusivism. In other words, all the people that we think should be written off, the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the prostitute, they're the ones who seem to find a home with Jesus. So we see this incredible inclusivism, that is, that Jesus includes, he welcomes the, the absolute least of these, the ones who were uh, social pariahs, the ones who, who nobody else would even touch, Jesus welcomes them. But we've also seen, haven't we, that there's a remarkable exclusivity to Jesus' ministry. In other words, as we just read, Jesus says there's only one way to the Father. There would be no other way to the living God, not through pagan ritual, not through good works, not through any other prophet or so-called religious representative. Jesus is the one way of salvation. There was an article published in the Los Angeles Times a few years ago when we were living in Southern California in the op-ed section. And it was a, uh, a much older local pastor who, who called for all Christian ministers, and indeed all Christians, to apologize for centuries-old acts of religious discrimination and in particular, their attempts to convert people of other religions. So this local pastor, in a very passionate way, tried to persuade anyone from, you know, any Christian, that if, they, if you've ever tried to persuade a person from another religion to trust in Jesus or to follow Jesus, you owe them an apology. How arrogant, he said. How ridiculous. Now here's what he said specifically. He said, devotees of all religions believe that the divine presence illuminates the whole world and all faiths revere great figures who embody the divine light and who teach divine truth. Consequently, he said, look, we need to stop trying to proselytize people from other religions. We need to stop trying to convert people from other religions. We need to let them live their lives. After all, they're on the same path that we're on. They're going the same place. They're just taking a different road. Well, this sparked all kinds of comments, as you might imagine, in Los Angeles, and most of them were, were very supportive of this op-ed, but one that really stood out to me, I was so, actually so ministered by, um, was the reply of a, of a gentle but very strong Presbyterian pastor who wrote the LA Times with a beautiful response. That's very long, I won't read the whole thing to you, but I want to read a portion. Here's what he wrote. The earliest church refused to join Jesus with the Roman pantheon of great figures who embody divine light. And as a result, 
She was mowed down in the Colosseums of the Mediterranean world for what was felt to be her arrogant intolerance. But the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, and in 300 years, many in the Roman Empire were converted. When the church has the guts to hold to the one God of Israel and to this one God's great self-revelation, the Messiah Jesus, and when she speaks and acts as graciously and as courageously as her Lord, she deeply helps everyone she reaches. Christians need not apologize for attempts to convert people of other religions. We need to apologize for the loss of the faith and courage to seek such conversions. Let a thousand faiths, religious and secular, speak their deep conviction in the public square, and each with its legitimate passions to convert. Let us respectfully then listen to what each other has to say, and let us see who prevails. The truth can handle itself. And what he's saying is, and this really captures the essence of Jesus' statement here, even though there are more than 4,000 religions in the world, there's only one God. And that one God can only be approached through Jesus Christ, which is not a statement meant to provoke or to push people away. It's actually a statement meant to invite people to meet this God, a God who doesn't need to be defended, only believed and proclaimed. And when every other religious system is found to be dead and wanting, completely unfulfilling, only Jesus then, only Jesus offers true life because He is the way, the truth, and the life. But we, have, we need faith to receive that. And that's what the Spirit provides and sustains. He points us to Jesus. That The role of the Spirit is constantly pointing us to Jesus, God's own self-revelation, and then He enables us to believe. And he keeps those who are his. Now let's look at one more work of the Spirit in this passage. We can't ignore the emphasis here in this passage on obeying Jesus. In fact, it appears over and over. Verse 25, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, or verse 15 rather, then verse 21, whoever keeps my commandments, he it is that loves me. Verse 23, anyone, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me, does not keep my word. There's no escaping this, that obedience to Christ's command is critically important. Jesus had no interest in followers who would not follow him in obedience. But we've already seen from John 13, this is why it's so important, this is why I'm so committed to expository preaching, preaching through the text sort of section by section, because we have to see how the whole thing unfolds in order to consider each particular passage. We've already seen from John 13 that our love for Jesus comes from, or actually flows out of, His prior love for us. His love for us is not a consequence of our obedience. And Jesus will make that doubly clear in the next two chapters of John. So what Jesus is saying here in John 14 is not, if you love me, then I'll give you the Holy Spirit. If you love me, you'll actually show that you deserve the Holy Spirit and you will receive Him. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, your love for me, made possible by my love for you, is made evident by your obedience, which actually reveals the presence of the Holy Spirit. So your love for me, which is made possible by my love for you, is made evident by your obedience, which reveals the presence of the Holy Spirit. I love what one theologian says very sort of tersely. He writes, relax. Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit here, not conditioning Him. If we're not careful, 
these commands in this passage can seem like good works that need to be done in order to deserve the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if if we take it that way, it's almost again as if Jesus is saying, if you're obedient, kind of holding out obedience, if you're obedient, you will get the Holy Spirit. But again, that's not the case here, considering it in in the overall context. These commands to obey simply give direction to the love that God has placed in us. In other words, you know, we're, we're commanded over and over and over to love God, but we might say, well, okay, but what does that actually look like? How does that actually work? Because I can't see God, and I can't feel God, I can't touch God, I can't hear God. So what does it actually mean to love God? And Jesus says, your love expresses itself in obedience. This is how you love God. You obey Him. You do what He says. We hear all the time about people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And especially in this sort of neck of the woods, there are all kinds of people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, of course. But they make no effort to obey His commands. They have no desire for God's glory. And can I say to you, if I can be so bold, these are not followers of Jesus. Now please hear me, people who love God still disobey Him. To fall short of God's standard does not mean that you are a true believer. You're not a true believer in Jesus. If that were the case, there would be no true followers of Jesus. We all fall short over and over and over again. Again, the law, it demands perfection. And we are all decidedly imperfect. Even our best deeds are are stained with selfish motives. So I'm not saying if you disobey Jesus' commands, you're not a true disciple. But what I am saying is, if you have no desire to obey Jesus, if you have no interest in the glory of God, no passion to resemble the one who saved you, then that's a frightening thing. And you may very well not be a true disciple. There is a burning desire in the heart of a true believer to obey God to bring Him glory, and that desire for obedience and the ability to obey itself is actually caused or fueled by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's our final point this morning as it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. By pouring God's love into our hearts and enabling our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit empowers our obedience. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables our obedience. Any efforts to obey God apart from the Spirit will be useless and end up in failure. Again, please hear me. I'm not saying if we, if we sin, if we fail, even if we fall into the same sin patterns again and again, we're not a true Christian. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying there is in the heart of the true believer, the regenerate heart, a longing to please God, a desire to obey God a passion for the glory of God. And if those things are absent, what that means, what that likely means is that the the Holy Spirit is absent. The Holy Spirit does not indwell that person. The Holy Spirit actually empowers our obedience. And I say by pouring God's love into our hearts that the Holy Spirit empowers our obedience because the only way we will have victory over the temptation to sin is by loving God more than we love our sin. That's the only way. I think sometimes we think that what the Holy Spirit does is He, he kind of strengthens our willpower. 
But what the Spirit does is deepen our understanding of and experience of God's love so that the pleasures of sin, they lose their luster. They become unattractive. And by God's grace, they become disgusting at times. How many men have ever overcome the lure of pornography because they finally mustered up the strength? It never happens. It never happens. It's only when the thought of pornography becomes disgusting in light of God's love for us that the temptation is avoided. How many folks have resisted the temptation to gossip because they finally, they finally had the ability to hold their tongue? That's not the way it works. The temptation to gossip is only resisted when a person realizes, I'm loved by God. I have God's approval. I don't need to be the one to dish out the latest news to make myself look important or to make other people like me. I'm actually loved by God. So it doesn't matter if they think I've got the latest and greatest news. How many people have overcome the temptation to lash out in anger because they counted to ten? It doesn't work that way. The temptation... To lash out in sinful anger is only overcome when a person realizes, you know, I don't need to be so upset when I'm disrespected. I don't need to be so mad when, I'm, when I don't get what I want, when people don't listen to me. I actually don't need anyone's respect. I am accepted, loved, and cherished by God, the King of the universe, so I can chill right now. It's okay if, if, if they're not listening to me. It's okay if someone disrespects me. I don't have to get angry because I have the approval of the great king of kings. And so what if they don't think I'm so great or they don't listen to me? See, not only did God send his son to die on a cross for us so that we who are broken and sinful could be reconciled to him by believing in faith, but that same God also really delights in us. If you're in Christ this morning, God has the most intense affection for you at this very moment. God actually delights in you. You are His treasure. He is relentlessly devoted to you. On you, God has concentrated the light and warmth of His care. It's kind of nice to know, isn't it, that the Creator of the universe actually enjoys us? He actually really does love us. He actually really does take pleasure in us because of Christ. And the more that we recognize the love that He has for us in Christ, the more that our love for Him grows, and the more that the lure of temptation slowly diminishes. The Holy Spirit empowers our obedience by pouring God's love in our hearts and enabling our faith in Jesus now, let me close with this. You know, most of the time, my kids show up in illustrations. I, I never warn them. I never tell them, hey, I'm going to say this about you this Sunday. Um, and while I would never say anything to make them look bad or to embarrass them, I am honest about our life and our family. We don't have it all together. We argue. We fight. We disagree. We go through all the things. We, we, we have just a normal uh, family. And so... When I reveal stuff, sometimes it may not make us look so great. So in light of that, in light of the, the, the fact that I think we can all agree I do reveal the bad stuff, let me at least brag on one of my kids for a second. My oldest son, Quinn, is applying for seminaries. He wants to go and pursue pastoral ministry. And 
And, and as part of that, he wants to go to a seminary and actually wants to, he, his desire is to work in a church while he's studying. So just the other day, he's applying for this position and he said, hey, dad, can I send you my cover letter and, and just have you take a look at it? And I said, oh, I'd love to. So he, in, in response to a person asking the question, why do you want to go, why do you want to go into vocational ministry? Here's what he wrote. He said, I have a heart for showing the law gospel distinction throughout the scripture. No amount of rules, white knuckling, or carrots and sticks can lead to true heart change. The only thing that can change a sinful heart or lead to victory over sin is is His Spirit in us, enabling and understanding that He's already victorious in our place, that the Father loves us and sees Christ's righteousness as our own. When I was 21 years old, I thought about Air Jordans, my boom box, (laughs) and, and a couple of other silly things. I was not thinking about the law gospel distinction, I promise you. But my son, I mean, he actually really understands it by God's grace. He understands if we are to obey, if we are to serve, if we are to love, if we are to worship, it's because the love that's already been planted in us by the Spirit. If we're to overcome sinful temptation, it will only be as we learn to rest and revel in and rejoice in the fullness of God's love for us in Christ, the sort of love that the Spirit regularly pours into our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, that you love us. And while we are unfaithful and we are all over the map emotionally and we are unreliable spiritually, you are faithful and you are good and you are perfect and you never fail us. Father, thank you that we serve the true and living God who can be known only through Jesus Christ. Lord, will you, by your Spirit and through your Word, reassure us yet again of your love for us in Christ. Give us the grace to believe it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.